I'm Victor uh, Lapuente of the University of Gothenburg, and today in the podcast uh, we have a political scientist and sociologist by training, Matthias uh, von Hau, currently at eBay Barcelona, but who has studied and researched at many highly prestigious uh, institutions such as Brown University, University of Manchester, Princeton, Humboldt uh, uh, University, the Universidad de San Martín in, in Buenos Aires, Universidad Nacional Autónoma de Mexico. His research is engaged in, in thrilling and, and hot debates on uh, current democracies and in particular uh, on the relationship between ethnic diversity and, and politics. Uh, welcome to the podcast, welcome to this uh, session. Thank you so much, Victor, for your kind invitation. I'm glad to be here and Great. visit beautiful Gothenburg. Thank you. We are going to start talking about uh, um, one core issue on your research, which I think is a current debate in many democracies, which is diversity and ethnic diversity. When we hear the word diversity and ethnic diversity, sometimes people start to think in politics in terms of problems. You know, ethnic diversity leads to more divisions. And we remember the work of some economists like uh, Alberto Lesina, for example, who have been pointing out that there is a relationship that the uh, more diverse uh, societies are societies where the welfare state is developed the least. Why? Because there are different ethnic groups and apparently the reason would be that the members of the majority, maybe of the ethnically majority group, they don't want to share their income, their taxes, that uh, is going to be devoted to programs of other of ethnic uh, minorities. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think diversity is a course for economic development or the development of the welfare state? I think we need to be careful with this assessment of um, diversity being uh, inherently problematic or a curse for for development outcomes. For one thing, um, it's important to differentiate what kind of diversity are we talking about. Are we talking about diversity with respect to, to language, linguistic differences? So you have a city or a country that's, that's more linguistically diverse, or are we talking about ethnic and racial differences with respect to perceived differences in, in physical appearance, or are we talking about religious differences, or are we talking about migration-based diversity? So you have places in the world where, you have, where there are more people who come originally from, from different countries, and you have other places where they're not. On the latter, I would like to say the, the research, the current research shows that migration-based diversity actually has been shown to be positive for economic growth and economic innovation. This is very interesting. It, it, it is shown to be positive, but at the same time, uh, yeah. if you go to the media or the public opinion, would be probably very different uh, view of, uh, of diversity. On the contrary, they see immigration as a, as a problem or, or as a cause. Why there is this discrepancy between what the studies are showing these positive effects and the perception maybe at the street level that is a more negative uh, uh, impact is because of the I mean populist parties or yeah I think it's it, it depends on what kind of diversity is, is politically um, relevant and it's turned into into a hot topic yeah and, and it's used in politics and in the moment I think 
This is migration-based diversity and religious diversity um, that have obtained the status. I mean, for example, in, yeah, in, in Germany, which I know a little bit, bit better because that's the country where I'm originally from, maybe also in Sweden. But if, for example, if you look historically at, at diversity, um, I think it's important to take a step back and look at, uh, at look at how diversity comes about and is made and remade over time. I'm saying this because in Germany, for example, you have all this concern around yeah, migration-based diversity and um, this concern of right-wing parties around, around is Islam and Muslim migration in particular. But then if you go back in time, do we really think of... Yeah, that 50 or 60 years ago, um, Germany was less diverse. Well, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, there were, if you, if you go back in time and if you look at what what historians have have identified, what you what you see, for example, that religious diversity mattered, but in a different way. For example, the distinction between Protestants and, and Catholics was a major political cleavage and had, had implications for, for people's everyday day lives. And in many parts of Germany, Catholics were not seen as, as really part of the community or there were suspicions around it. So, so I think yeah, these sort of having this idea that in the past yeah, we were homogeneous and right now we become more diverse and it's a problem need to be taking this with a grain of salt. That's very interesting. You are pointing out that maybe one of the reasons is the kind of nostalgia of a myth that actually yeah. was not never, never so, yeah. so, so true. Uh, along the same lines, uh, you have been mentioned two uh, one cleavage between Protestants and Catholics that could mm. actually, it led to lots of conflicts for many centuries, but now has been cured, or it doesn't mm. represent a problem for the economic development or the development yeah. of the welfare state in Germany. In, uh, in nor uh, northern uh, Europe, here in, this, in the Nordic countries, we have some examples as well with the good assimila assimilation or the good yeah. performance, let's say, or good adaptation of the Swedish minority in Finland, for example, and actually yeah. the, the regions uh, where there is a majority of Swedish minority in, in Finland are regions uh, highly developed economically and also with good public services and so on. Which, there is an hypothesis, and I would like to know your opinion on that, there is an hypothesis that maybe uh, these kind of cleavages between Protestants and Catholics in Germany or the Swedish minority in Finland have not created so much problems because of the role of the state. So the theory, according to Burrotstein, would be that if we have a state apparatus, um, uh, an administration that provides public services to everyone in the population without discriminating according to your ethnic uh, group, but to everyone, that creates a, a fosters social trust, fosters the trust between people belonging to different ethnic groups or ethnic clans, and that uh, diminishes the potential um, bad effects of ethnic diversity. Would you agree with that uh, hypothesis? To a large extent, yes, I do. Because yet it brings us back to this issue of the, what you started out with, the question of is, is diversity really a, a curse or a problem for, for development? Like whether you think of development as economic growth, but also as 
yeah, social development, forms of public goods provision, public services, healthcare, pension, and so on. So, I mean, if you take a, take a more historical perspective, as you say, so if, were you in, in settings where you have a, a stronger state, a state that's, that's able to, to provide public services, to enforce um, property rights, to enforce the rule of law, and so on. There, um, research has shown that over time, in those settings, it's more likely that, uh, that citizens adopt to the overarching of national identity promoted by that state in exchange yeah, for having access to these, these services provided. And at the same time, the strong, stronger state can, can do this, these things. Whereas in institutionally weak states, on the one hand, the citizens don't necessarily see the, the need to adopt the identity promoted by the state, but at the same time, the state is also not as effective in providing things such as schooling, um, roads, um, other kinds of services. So yes, I would subscribe to this, this hypothesis. Following uh, along these lines about the consequences of diversity for uh, uh, the well-being of a community and in particular democracy, if we go back in time to the uh, 1990s, the collapse of the socialist regimes in Central Eastern yeah. Europe, uh, people were looking at the map and they were saying, okay, look at these countries like the Czech Republic, Hungary or Poland are not very ethnically diverse. They are ethnically quite homogeneous. Therefore, democracy is going to be quickly consolidated in these countries. On the contrary, look at, uh, of course, former Yugoslavia with all the ethnic uh, conflicts there that ended up in a war. Look at Estonia or Latvia, countries with a very strong uh, uh, ethnic diversity or ethnic cleavage. Yeah. And these, in these countries, democracy will probably not survive or will have problems because precisely of ethnic uh, diversity. However, 30 years afterwards, the situation might be exactly the opposite. And as Jan Rovney of the Science Po has shown in, in, uh, in, uh, in a research, actually, uh, the countries like uh, Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland that have few politically organized uh, minorities are actually uh, um, uh, suffering uh, a democratic backsliding. Democracy is suffering there, and Hungary and Poland have stopped being full-fledged or full-liberal uh, democracies, um, uh, and they are within the European Union, while, on the contrary, more ethnically diverse uh, society like Estonia, Latvia, or Bulgaria, democracy seems to be performing better. So, so this uh, also adds more material to this um, good view of ethnic diversity that, that your research is showing as well? Yeah, it certainly goes into the direction of revisiting and challenging this idea that, that diversity is inherently problematic for development. Another country I would like to add to the mix is, is India. Like in the global south, one of the most yeah, ethno-linguistically, religiously diverse countries, which of course has its shares of, of ethnic conflict, but it is one of the most longest um, functioning democracies or in, in the global south. So that 
similar so that there's what this shows is that there's not necessarily a direct association between how diverse a country is and how democracy is is performing on the other hand i think you're right on that on the other hand once if we look at the countries that are suffering in terms of democracy not becoming autocratic but at to the very least suffering in their democratic foundations are tend to be relatively large countries like the the US uh, Brazil India uh, but probably you would not say it's because of the ethnic diversity but maybe because or at least my from my point of view I, I don't think that has to do so much about ethnic diversity but with the fact that these countries are polarizing in, in different ways between the left and the right, between different mm -hmm. territories and I not necessarily is overlapping with yeah. ethnic issues, isn't it? Yeah, I mean there there are a host of other factors that go into into accounting for for democratic backsliding um, that are not necessarily directly related to True. to ethnic diversity, but it has to do with how um, yeah, how the party system is structured and changing and how this in turn contributes to, to the polarization of society. I mean, in, the, in this context of the United States, for example, this stark polarization between Democrats and Republicans yeah. and has something to do, in my view, with the, yeah. this two-party system that doesn't allow for a third or fourth party to, to enter the formal political competition more so than with the fact that the US yeah, in the United States it's more ethnically diverse, it's more ethnically diverse than let's say your, your average European country. Yeah, and probably there is a role of the media and the, the social media as polarizing factors in, in this society. Anyway, I would like to ask you about one aspect related with ethnic diversity. You have already mentioned that the immigration, the, the, the percentage of the number of people born in a different country that, uh, that live in, in, in Western democracies. And this has uh, the increase of immigration has been linked to the rise of the uh, far-right uh, populism, uh, far-right or, or radical right or new right, whatever you want to call these new parties that more or less represent 20-25% of the votes of the European Parliament and, and between 10 and 20% and of the votes in, in many Western uh, yeah. democracies. What do you think about this link? Yeah. If there is one, it's a very indirect one that's politically mediated. I mean, of course there is an, yeah, when we look at the political um, landscape of, of Europe in the moment, there is a connection or there's a, an association between the rise of right-wing politics on the one hand and, and the so-called refugee crisis in, in 2015. And if you go back a little bit in time, you have a similar sort of association between refugee, um, yeah, major influx of, of refugees in the 1990s and an earlier wave in the rise of right-wing politics in, in, many, in many European countries. But when you look a little bit closer, there's no necessarily not 
a direct link between the the volume of um, of refugees or forced migrants that a that a country receives and and the rise of of right wing politics. I mean, to give you um, an example, for example, in in Spain, I think it, it has not received, comparatively speaking, a lot of refugees, but still you have a rise of a right wing nativist anti immigrant party in the form of Vox, which which politicizes this issue, but it's not necessarily linked to the... And then also when you look at within countries more specifically, for example in Germany, it's usually the the regions that receive the least amount of refugees and migrants in Germany where you have the most, the strongest votes in favor of the new right-wing um, populist party such as the, the AfD. So, yeah, the link is... It's, it's, it depends more how politicians frame and politicize this issue rather than on the, yeah, on the brute demographic facts of how many um, refugees or migrants or people who are not, have non, not born in the country are in a, in a, in a particular um, region. I think this is uh, very good. You are pointing out to the, let's say, supply side factor. So the supply yeah. of, of the of the politicians might might explain more yeah. this uh, than the demand from the, mm -hmm. the citizens. But anyway, uh, these politicians are are building on some resentment in the in the population, yeah. and uh, the experts on the rise of populism they divide in many camps, but we could say they divide in two large camps. On the one hand, the, those that are arguing uh, there is a, a cultural gap, a cultural cleavage, a cultural resentment of people uh, in uh, native uh, people in one country, the members of the ethnic majority, when they see people from the ethnic uh, minority. So it's a kind of cultural uh, reaction. And others who, on the contrary, point out it's more an economic uh, reaction. I mean, they are uh, people without jobs, uh, unemployed, and so on. So in this, in this uh, fight between the economic factors and the cultural factors, would you emphasize more this uh, idea of the, uh, of the economy? Because I, you also have mentioned something that this thing is very interesting, which is the role of the territory. It seems that at least in our research of the quality of government institute looking at the quality of government in, in different regions, we, we see how those regions where citizens perceive that the administration, the public sector is corrupt, is, is, is partial, is benefiting some people at the expense of others. This kind of resentment against the public sector is driving a, as well a lot of the of, of populism, and I actually this could explain also well vote the vote for for Trump in in uh, in, in the middle uh, Rust Belt on many areas in the in the U.S. or in the in the Midlands the vote for Brexit or in Spain the vote for populist uh, also separatist in some uh, regions or, or or so on. So I mean, you're you're already alluding to it, and I think I would neither support a crude economic nor a cultural explanation of of the rise of of, of right-wing um, populism. I think it has been shown that that 
just focusing on sort of the support for right-wing populism is, is not just concentrated among um, citizens who feel um, economically deprived, who, who are the losers of, of, of globalization. It's, it's, more, it's, more, it's more broadly differentiated. You also have people of comparatively high income, secure jobs who support these kind of parties. So I think it's, yeah, this, this perception or this understanding that, that public services are not working in the way as they should be. The, so the, for example, yeah, the decline of, also like whether it's the national health services in the United Kingdom or the the quality of schools in in Germany that are not maintained that are then this these kinds of frustrations with the the provision of public goods from the states are then the seedbed for yeah these these kinds of parties to to mobilize and to to use openness to migration and 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 to politicize migration use this as a scapegoat and mobilize people this way so i think this is where i would would draw the the connection so so i think i'm yeah thank you i think we have covered quite a lot on the consequences of ethnic diversity uh, or diversity and i would like to conclude this uh, discussion before we open for for questions on on the causes on the factors explaining diversity i i think your your research is, is quite un unique because m most of the uh, scholars uh, like to, to do research on, on how ethnic diversity has effects on the development of the, the democracy or, or the economy or, or the welfare state. As you have mentioned sometimes, uh, in many regressions on what explains economic development, what explains democracy, what explains quality of government, many scholars introduce as a control variable the ethnic fragmentation of a society and they normally it has a, an effect, normally a negative effect, not always, but many times a negative effect, but a significant effect. But you have, uh, you're, you are facing that challenge of, of saying, okay, let's study why in some countries there originally there is more ethnic diversity than, than in others, or diversity in general. That's one of the things that probably you need to explain. What do you understand by diversity? But what, what can you say of, the, of which factors explain why some societies are more ethnically or more di yeah, ethnically or more di uh, ethno linguistically more fragmented than, than, than others? It's, it's, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, let's say, geographical factors or the institutional factors explaining that? And yeah, happy to do so. So, Yes, so the starting point is, is diversity doesn't fall from the sky. It's, it's historically made and unmade. And one group of scholars looks at geography. And here the idea is that in more geographically, um, sorry, in more mountainous regions where you have more differences in in sort of what kind of agriculture, agriculture you, can, you can do at what kind of altitude. So in these, I think of Switzerland, for example. Um, this, these kind of settings have been historically conducive to linguistic diversity because you had small communities that yeah, would specialize on one particular kind of agriculture 
and then because of that, yeah, whatever, in herding, and then another group would would specialize on one particular type of wheat and another group or not. And so you would get these sort of highly specialized communities that then would endogenously would kind of develop their, their own dialects or and then over time, over and centuries. Their own democracies uh, yeah. and their own Yeah, yeah. So so this is the like the geographical argument sort of like in more mountainous regions, more geographically um, heterogeneous regions, you have more diversity. The problem with that is obviously it doesn't take migration into account and it doesn't take institutions such as the state or the market into account. So other scholars have looked at, okay, so why is it that one country or a particular region and country is more diverse? This has to do with um, colonialism and sort of countries that have been targeted by European overseas colonialism um, are set on average to be more ethnically diverse, largely because European colonizers wanted those set, for example, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, like ruled selectively through different chiefs and privileged some over others and really encouraged yeah, this the, the, the fragment, the social and political fragmentation of society. So they really link um, contemporary diversity to legacies of colonialism. Yeah. And then a third group that my current work also belongs to looks at, at the state and crudely speaking in historically stronger states, yeah, states that can um, police school, tax, otherwise regulate their populations. Um, what went on is that on the one hand they socialized but also in created incentives for diverse people like speaking different languages, belonging to, the, to, to adopt the, the identity sponsored by the state. Whereas in the context of, of weak states, states that barely reach beyond yeah, the limits of their capital, states that have problems in schooling or taxing their population, this, these settings were more conducive for the, for the preservation of diversity, but also for the reaction against, sort of, sort of against a weak state that tries to impose itself. So the, an example for the first one would be France. I mean, would be sort of France was extremely heterogeneous with respect to languages and dialects in the 19th century, but you had this strong centralized state that imposed French through the rolling out um, public mandatory education in the 19th century. And then when you go across the border to Spain, yeah, a, a more fragmented, comparatively weaker state gave more room for other actors to engage in the, in the first round of mass schooling and, and alphabetization, like yeah, Catalan civil society, Basque, uh, Basque organization. And I think the legacies for today is, yeah, Spain is in the European context a more, a more diverse country than than, than France. And yeah. taking this idea of, of, of France as yeah. a successful, let's say, state in, in, in yeah. or whatever, but yeah. a successful state building, one side effect of that is nationalism, uh, mm -hmm. the nationalistic uh, ideology. Uh, yeah. and, and which 
are the effects of that nationalism? Because you have been studying that. On the one hand, it seems that there is a positive effect, that is that nationalism gave the French this yeah. idea that we live in a community of equals. We are all equal. No matter you live in Burgundy or in Paris, we are all equal, are members of the same, of the same uh, community. But it, does it have also negative effects or, uh, or, or you would consider... Can you tell us a little bit what your research shows on the effects on, on, or what you have been discussing on the effects and consequences of nationalism? Yeah. I mean, nationalism is one of these, these, these catchy terms that we, we look at, we, we attach to a, to a lot of different, different things. I mean, at the broadest level, I think it's, nationalism is the, the ideological principle yeah, that the world is divided into different nations that are each are or should be sovereign and that are unique. But then how, it, how this ideological principle is put to work varies. So you, so you can have a state like the French state that uses nationalism in order to justify let's say, the imposition of French on, across the territory and the eradication of any type of, of dialect. You can also draw on... You have political parties, political movements that draw on nationalism in order to, to exclude minorities or migrants. So, and, but then you also... So this... I mean, ultimately, I can't give you a straightforward answer whether nationalism is good and bad. It depends on how and by whom it's used. And, 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 Ukra and in Ukraine, yeah. which is the role of nationalism in the Ukraine war? And okay, so <laughs> one is, is the, look, the reasons why Putin decided to, to invade in the Ukraine war are, are, compli are complicated and they're different. Difference. But the way in which he justifies is, is, is by drawing on on Rush, a particular variant of Russian nationalism that imagines Ukraine or large parts of Ukraine to be originally part of Russia. And this narrative, this, yeah, let's say, ideological message in the beginning of the war at least resonated in the, in the Russian public. But interestingly, when we look at the Ukrainian side, I mean, from... What I know about Ukraine, it has been, has been very divided between Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers, and this goes back to the 19th century in, in how uh, public education came about in Ukraine, and it often described as a country with relatively weak sense of, of national identification. It's very strong internal divisions. And interestingly, right now, if you look at recent research on the strength of national identification and how Ukrainians... So there has been an upsurge in the, the part of Ukrainians who solely identify or primarily identify as Ukrainians and, um, and then whether they're Russian speaker or Ukrainian speakers, that has a secondary place. So in a sense, the war um, propels yeah, a stronger national identity yeah, rather than the other way around. And this kind of links up with a lot of research on Europe historically where, and other, where war, and especially international war, has been identified as a key driver of a sense of national identification. 
Um, so we often think of nationalism as a cause of conflict, but conflict can also be a driver of nationalism. Thank you very much, Matthias, for a fantastic uh, conversation. Yeah. I would like now to open the floor for uh, uh, questions, uh, comments, anything. Is there any questions to these uh, men here on the podium? And we do have one. Hello. Thank you. Uh, how do you think that the democracy will survive if he people make our choice because of propaganda? Um, is your question, if I understand it correctly, is, is, is around... How do you think that the democracy will sur survive? Because I, I think that we people make our choice because of propaganda. Yeah. Well, you go I, I think the... Um, yeah. Democracy has always relied on some sort of propaganda, but uh, electoral campaigns have changed quite a lot over the years. And I think that it's true that now we are in a, in a particular problem because maybe there is more propaganda, uh, as, as, as you say, than, than before, in the sense that uh, news, for example, are less re reliable for the voters. So in the 60s or in the 70s or in the 80s, most of the citizens in most Western countries trust their media sources. Therefore, they trust that the news they got from them were a good reflection of uh, the statements of the politicians or policies and so on. Now, people don't trust the media. The, 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 the percentage of trusted media has collapsed all over the, the West. There are some exceptions. There are some exceptions within some countries, and there are some countries as well that they are exceptions on themselves, relatively speaking, like the northern countries. But overall, there has been a decrease of trust. That makes much more difficult the communication, and that gives more space for, as you call it, propaganda or this kind of targeted, manipulated messages especially of politicians, especially taking into account the uh, social media and the polarization. And that has also allowed these new political parties on the far left and also on the far right, particularly, to, to grow. I think that's the, the scenario now. I think there is an optimistic uh, view of that, and is the, that the same way that in the end of the 19th century uh, there were Free, free tabloids, free newspapers in most Western countries, the, there was an explosion of these tabloids with tones of lies about politics and so on. And the media managed to control that. And, and from that uh, propaganda or bad media emerged a, a good media system that we have enjoyed for large parts of the 20th century. I believe that maybe we will be able, our societies, to control social media and the, the new uh, platforms for distributing uh, YouTube, uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, TikTok, the news platforms to, to kind of achieve again what we had before, which is a increased trust, uh, levels of trust in the media. I concur with you that yeah, there, there is the problem of an increasing fragmentation of the me of through social media of of the public space, so that yeah, there is no 
it's it's more difficult to have a to have a conversation and an exchange of arguments around different political positions in the current climate. But at the same time, I mean, from a historical perspective, there's there have been quite a number of um, revolutions in in communications and in media technologies over time. So if you think back. I've worked quite extensively on the, the early and mid-20th century in Latin America and the introduction of radio broadcasting. And many commentators at the time were very worried about the radio because it allowed politicians who were good at talking to capture a nationwide audience rather than gaining votes through more personalized um, town hall meetings where you could get an impression of the whole um, Persona, and that was seen as a really as a problem for democracy. Yeah, that that, and in the end, yeah, we're working with radio broadcasting as one of the communication channels. And today, I mean, in the way in which it it then has become regulated, it it has become part and parcel of of our daily life. So in that sense, these 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 changes in communication technologies pose a real challenge to democracy and I'm, I'm not neglecting that but then if you take a more historical perspective I think there is a sense of, of taking a slightly more optimistic view and not, not seeing kind of the end of democracy on the immediate horizon. Any other question to the man at the scene? Yes. Hello. Uh, a quick question. We were talking a little bit about the rise of right-wing political parties across Europe. Do you think this is, has to do with the message that they are uh, putting forth to the people, or is it more of uh, a reaction due to the, um, we could say, the reluctance or incompetence of uh, mainstream established parties that are causing this shift from left to right. Where, where do you think the, the, the focus is on, on that? I've been talking about it, so maybe, Victor, you want to... Well, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think it's, it's both things. There is yeah. a, a demand uh, on, on the side of the voters because there is a disappointment. There has been an increase in the... Uh, before I was talking about the, the mistrust in the media, but there has been also an increase in the mistrust in public institutions. So all across Western countries, people trust government, trust their uh, national uh, uh, parliament, trust their even their local politicians less than what they used to trust in the past. So they perceive elites, political elites, as, as distant, and the extreme case would be the Brexit. So you see the Brussels elite taking decisions that affect uh, farmers in, in the Midlands or, or workers in Manchester. And since you see them as distant and corrupt and not concerned about your daily works and daily problems, but concerned about their their workings of their own bureaucracy and their own things, that is a factor that has created resentment, particularly in some territories. And then that depends, as you have said, I think, very wisely, on the ability of the politicians to have uh, a message. There are many European countries, Sweden for, Sweden for some years, now not, but or Spain as well for other years, where people were wondering why there is no a far-right party. Well, sometimes the far-right party needs also talented far-right politicians who are able to create a message, who are able actually to break 
even if some of them have fascist roots, they have, been, they have to be able to say, well, we are not fascist like our fathers, literally, in the case of Marine Le Pen, but we are more kind of even leftish when it comes to some policies of the welfare state. So we are not uh, former Nazis, former fascists. We are new politicians. And this kind of fresh new message uh, has been able to resonate to a larger audience because you you have a fascist of nazi message strictly speaking you will get one two percent of the votes you will not reach much more Don't another question or we are happy i have to say thank you for this uh, talk about an important issue thank, thank you. you thank you thank much. you so much for having us here today much appreciated